Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me seek iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law was paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul was puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our epistle reading is from Philippians 3, verses 15 through 19. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glorify in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading this morning is from the Holy is according to St. Luke, the 17th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns you to, to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? If so, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants and we have only done what was our duty. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Here's a free mini-sermon for you. Uh, you owe me nothing more uh, for this. I'm going to preach a five-minute mini-sermon at the beginning. So we're working through Philippians, so I'm not going to preach on the gospel text. Except that one of, the most noticeable, one of the most noticeable things about this gospel text is this, is the famous passage in there where the disciples say to Jesus, increase our faith. Jesus, we want more faith. And Jesus says, I, I tell you that if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, 
be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. We want more faith, right? So what's intriguing about this text is that what causes the disciples to ask that is when Jesus says to them, you have to forgive. In fact, I'm telling you, if, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And faced with that prospect of having to forgive somebody who continually sins against you, the disciples say, God, increase our faith. That's what we need. That's what they need more faith for, right? It's not just this vague, like, I wish I believed in Jesus more. But it's God, it's impossible to forgive people. So they do what they got to do, ask Jesus to increase our faith, and he does. Anyway, okay, that's the free sermon. Philippians chapter 3, let's talk about that. So, uh, Paul starts off in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Uh, Think what way, you ask? And the answer is the way that he's been describing in the previous verses, if you haven't been here. Uh, Let me uh, rehash them again for you. Let me do it a little bit differently than I've been doing it. Let's do it through the lens of Paul's beliefs, what he believes, through the lens of Paul's identity, the way he thinks about himself based upon those beliefs, and then through the lens of Paul's relationship with the Philippians, which flows out of his identity, which flows out of what he believes about Jesus. So Jesus' beliefs about Jesus in Philippians 1 through 3, kind of coming to a climax in what we've been looking at in chapter 3, are this. Jesus died for our sins, and then Jesus rose from the dead to make all things new again, including us as individuals. Paul believes that that has not yet come to its full fruition, although it has been guaranteed that it will happen, the power of Jesus' resurrection by the down payment of the Holy Spirit. But he believes it hasn't yet fully come to its fruition. And so, verse 14 last week, I haven't yet attained this, but this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and chasing forward to what's ahead, I press on toward the mark of the calling, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So it's guaranteed Christ Jesus has made me his own, he says in verse 12. So I know that the resurrection life is my destiny, and so I'm going to live the resurrection life now imperfectly. I can't perfectly, I can't perfectly be perfect right now. I can't perfectly forgive. I can't perfectly accept forgiveness. I always want power over other people. I will always be greedy. And yet, because Jesus has made me his own, that's my destiny. That's my goal. What does this mean for Paul's identity? This is the second part. It means that his identity is in this one great unalterable fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. He's completely comfortable abandoning. I was really super important. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. I could trace my genealogy. I was a Pharisee. I was, according to the law, blameless. I was an upstanding citizen. I was the kind of person that everybody in the community respected. I had social standing. I had religious standing, which for Jews was the same thing. I had socioeconomic standing. All of those things I will now count as refuse compared to the excellency of knowing that Jesus is mine, that I am a resurrection person. That's my identity now. Is social standing fine? Well, of course it is. Is money fine? Yes. Is power fine? Is pleasure fine? Of course God gives us all these good gifts, but they are no longer what identifies us. They are all seen through the lens of that one great fact. Jesus died and rose from the dead, and I died and rose from the dead with him. 
And that means nothing else matters ultimately. That's who I am. That's Paul's identity. What does this mean for his relationships? And again, this goes a little bit back to chapter 2. For his relationships, this means this. I no longer have to fight for my social standing. I no longer have to fight for who I am. If I don't have any money, it doesn't bother me if I'm poor. If I'm rich, it doesn't bother me. If I have a lot of friends, it doesn't bother me. If I don't have any friends, it doesn't bother me. Paul Paul will call all these things afflictions. It's not like they're good things. But ultimately, they don't define who he is. Paul is not the friendly guy. Paul is not the important guy. Paul is not the religious guy. Paul is the guy who's been buried by baptism into Jesus Christ so that Jesus' death and resurrection are his identifying mark. And what that means is he has been liberated to not worry about what others think about him, to not try and demand respect, to not try and get others to like him by being funny or witty or super religious or super intelligent. Now he is free, go back to the beginning of chapter 2, he is free to humbly serve each other, to, to make little of himself and much of other people. Because his identity isn't tied up in his own power or his own standing. So when we come to our chat, our verses here, 15 through 19, he's saying, for those of us who are mature, let's think this way. Spiritual maturity means thinking little of yourself, not because I'm just so unimportant and worthless, but because since Jesus has died and swallowed me up with his blood and empowered me with his resurrection, I don't need standing from anything else, from money or from acceptance or from power, from whatever. I'm free to serve in the name of Jesus. All right, let's work backwards to this text. Knowing that that's that's the whole background for this, let's start with verse 18. There's three parts of this text. There's 15 and 16, there's 17, and then there's 18 and 19. Let's start with 18 and 19. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. Uh, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul in this text is not warning us away from bad people. He's not telling us, you know those bad enemies of the cross of Christ? Here's what they look like. Here's four things that that will uh, define them. Now, don't pay any attention to them. Like, ignore them. That's not his goal here. His goal here is to warn us against ourselves. That's the context that you see in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Be like this, Paul says, and not like this. He's not saying, don't, he's not saying avoid those people. He's saying avoid being like that. The Christian, the Christian life is not marked by these four things. The life outside of Christ is marked by these four things. What are the four things? Let's look at them real quick. Uh, again, if you don't mind, backwards to forwards in verse 19. Their minds are set on earthly things. What does it mean to have your mind set on earthly things? To have your minds... So based on what I just said, you might think that Paul means don't think about money or don't think about sex or don't think about power or don't think about uh, your social standing. That's actually not what having your mind not set on earthly thing mean, things mean. At Community Group a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this text and the text before this. And a couple of the women in the group rightly pointed us to Colossians 3. I thought it was a really, when they did, I thought that this totally makes sense. It's a really solid move. I'm going to read a little bit of Colossians 3 to you. And while I'm turning there, I want to point out that when Paul says their minds are set on earthly things, it is the flip side of verse 14 that we read last week, where Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul is drawing a distinction between up, heaven, and earth. 
And it has nothing to do with spiritual versus physical. Paul's never interested in that sort of platonic distinction. He doesn't believe in that. He's a faithful Jew. He believes that God designed the physical world and God designed the spiritual world. This comes to a climax in the eternal God becoming human. What he means instead is this. In Colossians 3, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Seek the heavenly things. Well, what are the heavenly things? Harp playing? Streets of gold? Disembodied spirits floating around? No, that's not what he's talking about. Here's what he means. He means don't seek the earthly things. Well, what are the earthly things then? Here's what he says. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here's the earthly things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is on idolatry, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. These are what he means by earthly things. Not physical things on earth, but the way the earthly mindset works. The way the mindset out of, outside of Christ works. Where lying is appropriate. Where wrath and malice are an appropriate response to being mistreated. Where sexual immorality is just the coin of the realm. Where doing what makes you feel good is your primary motive in life. Don't set your mind on these earthly things, but set your mind on heavenly things, he says. Here's the heavenly things. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, responding to people like Jesus treats us, bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, to go back to the gospel reading. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. There's no prejudice. There's no racism. But Christ is all in all. These are the things of heaven. And Paul says here that, the, that one of the primary identifiers of those who live outside of Christ is that their minds are set on earthly things. We shouldn't be like this. We should have our minds set on Christ's pattern of living. Second, they glory in their shame. Again, working backwards through verse 19. They take pleasure. So, so they take pleasure in what ought to be their shame. Sin twists our minds so much that we begin to excuse the things that we do that are wrong as well. I don't know, whatever it is that we do to excuse these things. Just speaking for me personally, you know, well, it's, it's okay. Uh, God's going to forgive me anyway. I'll just have to pray and ask. There's so much truth in that, that it can become a cover-up for sin. Well, compared to somebody else, what I did is, I guess, not that horrible. Or everybody's doing it. And these are the kind of things that you say to uh, your little kids to not think like this. But this is what we, we all do in our own minds. In an advanced level, if I can talk about the word advanced in a negative way, like we begin to glory in these things, right? We treat our sexual immorality as something to be proud of. We treat our greed something as something to be proud of. For those of you who don't glory in your sexual immorality, we work so hard. We make our jobs and money making a priority. We're not gracious with what God has given us to give those gifts to other people who need them. We overwork and neglect our families. And then we stand there and look at that house or that car, and we're proud of it. We're proud of the thing that we gained through our sin, through our vice, through our greed. We're proud of our anger, right? 
We're proud of our ma- for, our, for our wrath and malice, the words that Paul uses in uh, Colossians. Like somebody treats you wrong, and so many of us are the kind of people who are like, yeah, I, I told them what I thought about them. Look, if you come in here and you talk like that to me, I'm a nice person. I'm a nice person, but if you come in here and talk like that to me, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think. And, and we consider that to be a virtue, to, to be a mark. Like we're independent. We're strong-willed. We glory in our anger and in our wrath. And Paul says that's not the, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Flee these sorts of things. This is the this is an identifier of those who are outside of Christ. Their God is their belly. For for those of you who know me, you will know that that perhaps these what is this five words are maybe the most convicting words in the Bible. My struggle with gluttony is always hanging over my head. My belief, uh, not what I know in my head, but my belief that food will make me happy, is something that I. I seriously, I repent of this maybe at least three times a day. That's how many meals we're supposed to eat, right? And even more than that, this notion that I can't be happy unless I have food. And it's not, he's not just talking about food here, right? Although this is it. He's talking about any sort of pleasure. What does he mean by saying that these pleasures are our God or their God, I should say? Well, as Luther rightly says, uh, uh, God is the one who we fear, love, and trust above all things. That should be the creator God in Jesus Christ. But frequently it's not. Frequently it's food. Frequently I'm afraid that if I don't eat some food, I'm not going to be happy or I'm not going to be satisfied. There's no way possible that I could go to bed hungry. That would just be horrifying. I love food more than God. I get more pleasure out of food than I do out of of spending time with God. I trust in food more than God. If I'm having a bad day, I know that I'm going to get that meal at the end of the day, and then it's going to be better. I don't, first of all, think, I need Jesus right now. This day is tough. I need Jesus. I think I need food. Now, maybe food's not your thing. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's being in control over some part of your life. Maybe it's worrying about money. Maybe it's a relationship thing. Maybe it's something going on with your kids or with your spouse or with your friends. We all have these things that can rightly be described as belly that, that want to be our God, that want to replace the one true God, like Calvin says, and I told the uh, adult Bible study last week, our hearts are, are idol factories. They're constantly churning out these false gods that promise to give us something trustworthy, to promise that make us truly happy, that promise us that if you don't get us, that, 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 that promise us fear if we don't have them. If you don't get us, you know, your life's going to be empty. All the marketers and the PR people and advertisers in the world are gearing up to getting you guys to think this sort of thing, that what you need is X, Y, or Z. That's a marker of those who are outside of Christ. And then finally, their end is destruction. Paul says that that way is not the way of pleasure. That way is not the way of satisfaction. That way is not the way of fulfillment and happiness. Only Christ is, so avoid that way. Alternatively to that sort of lifestyle, we should jump up to verse 17 Imitate Paul. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. At first glance, this seems kind of rude. Paul says, be like me. If I stood up here and I told you guys to be like me, here's what I want you to do today is I want you to model your life after me. Uh, I would, uh, I actually just couldn't do that in good conscience. I couldn't do it without laughing probably because it's such a ridiculous thing. I don't want anybody to be like me. If you knew what I was like on the inside, if you knew what my life was like, if you knew the things that I do and the things that I think and the things that I say, you would be horrified. 
But here's Paul saying, imitate me. And Paul doesn't mean imitate me because I have it all together. There's two things going on here. First of all, Paul is saying, imitate me in this journey that I'm on. What's he talking about? Paul's not talking about how he's such a great guy here. He's talking about how I'm a resurrection guy. I have not yet already attained this. But this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and chasing forward for what's ahead, I'm pursuing the high upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Imitate me in that pursuit. Imitate me in saying, I haven't yet attained this. I have not, I'm not yet completely Christ-like. Christ does have a hold of me. He says that in the previous verse. But I've not yet attained to the full resurrection life. I am chasing after, that is my goal. I'm going to forget all my false identities which are laying behind me. And I'm going to chase after the goal of being found in Jesus Christ. Join in with me in that chase. That's what he means. He doesn't mean like, I'm a good guy, be like me. He means, I'm going after Jesus. Come, come join, join with me in chasing after Jesus. Another way that he says it that's maybe a little bit more clear is in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Like, be like me to the extent that I'm chasing after, the, after Christ, that I'm following after Christ. Follow after me. This is the alternative to the worldly lifestyle where power and money and pleasure are the coin of the realm. In Jesus, he's the coin of the realm. Jesus is the one true value. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus is the one thing that should mark you, your identity. Let's jump up to verse 15 and 17 to talk about what the, how this is going to be possible. Because frankly, when I read, just, just if I just read that their God is their belly, and I think I should chase after Jesus and not after pleasure from food, I honestly can't even imagine a scenario where that happens. I sometimes will see little glimpses of that. I will, as soon as I see a little glimpse of pleasure in Jesus Christ that's sweeter than the pleasure of food, the next day I'll be back thinking, you know what I could use? I could use a nice cheeseburger. It's almost impossible. And Paul's not saying that it is possible. He's saying this. Let those of you, let those of us who are mature think this way. There is a possibility that some of us, like Aaron Miller, don't. If anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. You see what he says? He says two things here. First of all, again, working backwards, hold true to what you've attained. What have you attained? Well, he says it back up here in verse 12, and I've already quoted it several times. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You haven't already obtained perfection, but what you have obtained is this. Christ Jesus has grabbed you and made you his own. That's the important thing. As long as you have that, your destiny is set. The end goal is perfection and you will achieve it. How will you achieve it? This way. My God will reveal that also to you. God is going to take the, God is going to take the initiative and make us perfect. God is the one who's going to give me the sweet pleasure of himself that's greater than the pleasure of food or power or money. God is going to make, God is going to take this initiative and turn my heart and mind to Him as I read His Word, as I hang out with you guys, as I meet Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit more and more in community and in service. At the table, as we, as we receive the sacrament and Jesus gives us Himself completely, He will begin to turn my mind from the things of this world to the things that are in heaven. This should be encouraging because otherwise it's impossible. It's not just the impossibility of my own sin, too. It's the impossibility of your sin as it relates to me. 
It's the impossibility of my kid's sin or Angela's sin. And they're burdened with my, the impossibility of my sin. Angela wakes up every day thinking, like, how can I get Aaron's behavior to be better? I wake up every day. That's not funny. I wake up every day thinking the same thing about her. I wake up every day thinking the same thing about you guys. How can my church, how can the people in my church be more Christ-like? I think about us as a whole. I think about us individually. And I pray to God that you think about me and the, the, the ways that I'm broken and how you can encourage me to be more Christ-like. How can, how you can encourage me to be a follower of Christ. And honestly, it's just impossible. You can talk your head off. You can give me five reasons, 10 reasons, 20 reasons for why my behavior should be better. And I'm just unchangeable. But God will reveal this to us. By the power of his Holy Spirit, the gospel will change our hearts and minds. Let's embrace that. Amen.